0: Warning, because the colonization of the Americas was such a staggeringly enormous event with far reaching economic, political, and ideological consequences, the impact of systemic colonial racism are still felt in every institution, including the sciences, history, and archeology. It It is an ethical imperative as well as an intellectual imperative to decolonize. The Seriously Wrong podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. If you want to know more about the land that you live on, a good place to start is native-land.ca. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong podcast. We are your hosts, the Wrong Boys. My name is Sean.
1: I'm Aaron. Welcome to the show, everybody.
0: This week, we got a really interesting interview with Dr. Paulette Steves, who has written a book called The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, which challenges some of the common sense ideas about when and how indigenous peoples came to the Americas. Really excited to share this interview, but before we do that, I just want to quickly say this is a listener-supported show. We rely on donations from our donor community on Patreon. For $6 a month, you get access to our episodes early and our entire back catalog, including things that have been taken down from the main feed, as well as bonus episodes. So if you like supporting independent leftist comedy content, that's a great way to do it, and we appreciate it a lot. So I just wanted to, first of all, thank everyone who's already doing that. We're a listener-supported show and also implore people who aren't doing that to consider it as a possibility because it makes a huge difference allowing us to continue doing the show. So this subject matter is something that I find really fascinating, like, you know, where people came from, where they moved at different times. I came up in our conversation with David Wengrow there's very conservative ideas about when and how people moved around. And he pointed out, well, people had boats a lot earlier than we thought. There's a lot of possibilities for movement, and we wouldn't necessarily have records of everywhere that people have been. So if you're going by just what you have hard records for, you're just sort of naturally going to come to conservative conclusions that people haven't been around as long as they may have been. And when I think about this, I sort of came to the conclusion that it's possible, maybe even likely, that human beings moved around the planet a lot more, a lot sooner than we thought of so i'm really fascinated by the possibility that within human history there could have been more movement just sort of moving back and forth across the world than we ever
1: dreamed of i gotta say after hearing from Paulette and what she said in this interview, I was kind of blown away by how many different lines of evidence there are leading to this conclusion. Yeah, it's just a real honor to have her on the show and her work kind of pioneering this concept that is like only recently been shifted in terms of like, what is the scientific consensus?
0: Also, what's really striking to me about all of this is when you have this incredible scale of evidence, um, there's all these different sites that, you know, predate what's called the Clovis period. And, you know, there's the linguistic evidence of like, I wasn't aware of this, but the Americas have more language diversity than any other continent. And like language takes time to develop. So the implication of having more language diversity in a given area is that people have been there for longer. But yet there's been this sort of persistent argument that it's impossible that people have been in the Americas for longer. When you look at the context of the time period where these debates were actually happening over the last hundred, hundred, and 50 years, it's pretty clear that what shaped these discourses was colonial racism, what shaped these biases in anthropology and archaeology against looking at the whole of the evidence here to come to the best conclusions possible. It was racist colonial biases from settlers who were often white supremacists, literal white supremacists or eugenicists, basically arguing that because indigenous people had only been here for some limited amount of time, that gives them less of a right to, say, ownership and sovereignty in the land. But because of these racist biases within archaeology, things that I think should be accepted as basic facts about the continent that we live on have been repressed, ignored, and people have been attacked for even raising these questions. It is really quite staggering, the depth of evidence here and how little explanation there can be for this consensus other than racism.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's not just the language evidence. There's been like more and more discoveries of actual sites that have been verified, accepted by the scientific community as being older than Clovis. Some of the consensus on this getting pushed back by a few thousands of years in the mid-2010s, and then recently there's this discovery of the fossilized human footprints in the White Sands National Park that have been dated back to 23,000 years ago, confirmed articles in National Geographic, NPR about it. It's on the U.S. Geological Survey website. It's like accepted science now. Humans have been on these continents much longer than, as you said, people originally thought. It's It's just so exciting to be like seeing a kind of scientific revolution on something like this that has been a long time coming. The evidence has been accumulating and accumulating for a while. And it seems to really be kind of like tumbling down the hill in the other direction now. And it opens up all this space to discover more about the actual long arc of history in terms of global human migration and the American continents. And it also being a vindication of indigenous oral traditions and their cultures that have said for a long time that they've been here longer than this. It's a fascinating developing area of human knowledge.
0: I remember thinking this before looking at, you know, human migration, human history and stuff. And I just, I was seeing in more than one instance where you could actually see that timeline change over time. Like up until this year, they thought this was the earliest example of thing X. And now new evidence pushes that back by 5,000 years. Now new evidence pushes that back by 1,500 years. When you see something like that, the sort of meta induction of seeing these timelines move earlier and earlier is that, oh, well, then we should probably assume that our earliest timelines as of now are going to be made massively obsolete by new findings in the future. So like the meta induction is we must just be scratching the surface. Like it should, if logic serves, continue to be pushed back further and further. It's just really, really fascinating. But yeah, we're we're not experts on this subject, but I did have the chance to speak to an expert. Um, she <laughs> So I did an interview with Paulette Steves. She knows a lot more about this than I do. So maybe we can hear what she had to say. I think that's a great idea.
1: It's a great interview.
0: My conversation with Dr. Paulette Steves begin Today we're joined by Dr. Paulette Steves, associate professor of sociology at Algoma University and the author of The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Our pleasure definitely. So there's something called the Clovis first hypothesis which has been kind of the consensus on human migration to the Americas for some time. Do you mind maybe starting with explaining a bit what the Clovis first hypothesis is?
2: Well, the Clovis first hypothesis is a framing of Indigenous history of the Indigenous people of the Americas that was written completely from a Western Eurocentric viewpoint without any input from Indigenous people. The thing about the Clovis first hypothesis is that There were archaeologists that absolutely stand by that hypothesis for the first and earliest human migrations into the western hemisphere. There are archaeologists who argue against it, and there's a large group of scientists that have done the work to disprove all of the points of the Clovis first theory. So the the scientific evidence that shows that the Clovis first theory is wrong is there it's sort of been put together and published in the last five to ten years which is wonderful because people are thinking outside the box and actually doing the work to support other ideas and when it comes to understandings of human history what we know about human history on a global scale has changed immensely in the last 10 to 20 years because scientists are out there doing the work we don't know everything about human history. It's not static. And the more that science develops these amazing technologies, like reading DNA in soils, the more we learn of human history. So on a global scale, we know that humans were in other areas of the world outside of Africa much earlier than previously thought. And they used to teach that Homo erectus and Homo sapiens and Neanderthals were all their own species and didn't interbreed. We now know that's wrong thanks to genetic work. We know that early hominid species did interbreed. So, what we, our understanding of human history has greatly changed. So, that kind of reflects on the history of indigenous peoples of the Americas. It's not static, it's changing because our understanding of human history on a global scale is changing. And when it comes to the Clovis first hypothesis, it was really embedded. As a form of racism and bias against indigenous peoples in the Western Hemisphere. So, one of the earliest archaeologists from the Smithsonian, Alex Hrlichka, had originally argued that, oh, the Indians have only been here 3,000 years, based on one small set of burial remains from somewhere in Alaska, I think. But, you know, he didn't have the data to back up that claim. And Jesse Figgins, who was an archaeologist at the Denver Museum, excavated some sites in New Mexico that's where the Clovis name comes from it comes from Clovis New Mexico and they found this really beautiful stone tool type that has a big sort of shallow basin taken out of the middle of it and they called it the Clovis tool because it was found near Clovis New Mexico but he found those tools embedded in the ribs of a ancient bison that had been extinct for over 10,000 years so Jesse Figgins had to argue with Alex Hrlichka. And Alex Herlichka never believed him, but it, it became accepted that people had then been in the Americas for at least 10,000 years. And that was in the 1920s. And it's pretty much been stuck there ever since. I mean, some people have now discussed a possible migration by boat along the coast. And maybe people have been here fourteen to 16,000 years. But my data shows that people have been here as early as over 200,000 years. And there's a lot of data and evidence It's ignored and dismissed because of bias within archaeology.
0: Is it a project, do you think, ideologically, to say that Indigenous people don't have rights to America, that they're just early immigrants or that they haven't been here very long? Is that motivating people to misread data and to not look under every rock for the reality of the Americas?
2: Yeah, you're really hitting on some good points. So it's not just misreading data. Anyone who published, any archeologist who published on a site that was older than Clovis or say older than 12,000 years was really violently attacked. This area of archeology span in the Americas was called an area of academic suicide. That's not science, right? That's racism bias. And when you look at what do archeologists do? Well, they make their living off the material record off of archeology. span And there's a history, and I discuss this in my book, that archeologists have worked hand in hand with the nation state to erase indigenous links to the land. So when you erase indigenous people from the land, you erase the people that own the land, that own the artifacts, that own the history. Archeologists to this day, and geneticists, they talk about the indigenous people of North America as being Asians from Asia who are recent immigrants to the continent. So we haven't been here long, we're not that evolved, we don't own the land, it infers a lot of very violent and damaging thoughts for people. And you know what, it frames racism, and it frames colonization. And so if you're taught that Indigenous people haven't been here very long, you don't support their claims to the land, right? And those archaeologists control the artifacts, control the archaeology, control the history, and they make your living from it. And I discussed that in chapter two of my book, and that was one of the most perplexing chapters to write because I had to do a really deep dive into the academic history of the development of archaeology in the Americas. And it's really disturbing. It was a very racist field. And it changed after World War II. It began to change a little bit because people realized that eugenics was not something that should be taught (laughs) as being acceptable. But we have a long way to go. We've made some changes, but we have a long way to go. We really owe a a debt of gratitude to those archaeologists that put their careers on the line to publish what they know was the truth. So there was a number of archaeological sites that when they were dated, the archaeologists knew that they were quite a bit older than 12,000 years, and they published on those sites and they paid the price. One got fired, I believe, from the Museum of Man in Ottawa. saying that a site in Ontario was older and others lost their funding. Tom Dillehay apparently lost his funding when he was working on Monte Verde because he said it was over 14,000 years old. And it's not normal that there would be this level of violent critique against an idea. When you look around the world, we see early hominids in Northern Asia over 2 million years ago. And we see that modern humans, what we call modern humans, were in parts of Europe and Asia over 40, 60, 80,000 years ago. So are we supposed to think that, you know, early hominids walked out of Africa 14,000 kilometers to northern Asia and just stopped? There were many times between glaciations when there was a land bridge and when there was a forest and when there was food. And we know from paleontology that mammals were migrating back and forth for millions of years. So we're supposed to believe just blindly that hominids got to Northern Asia and just stopped for 2 million years and then came during a major glaciation or at the end of the glaciation is when they migrated. When you think about it critically, that doesn't make any sense. But to archaeologists, it was embedded within the profession that you didn't dare talk about a site being older than 12,000 years in North America or you were going to end your career and you were going to be violently critiqued. Louis Leakey, who was the famous paleontologist that worked a lot in South Africa, he worked on a site in Southern California called the Calico site. And when he said that site was over 50,000 years and possibly had levels as old as 200,000 years, all of a sudden he was a crazy old man. So even Louis Leakey, one of the greatest paleontologists in the world was violently critiqued for saying that sites in the Americas were older. And when you think about it, there's no reason for that. And that's one of the things I'm really trying to bring to people's understanding is that looking around the world, Our understandings, our knowledge of human migrations and evolution has changed vastly just in the last 10, 20 years. So why wouldn't it change for North America when we know that it was framed in racism and bias to erase Indigenous people from the land? When you sort of
0: set out to look at sites from the Americas that are pre the Clovis, it's like twelve to 14,000, is that right? It's
2: 10,800 to 11,200, and I would say with, you know, maybe 1,000 years each side. How many sites in the Americas
0: did you expect to find when setting out on this? And how much did you actually end up finding?
2: I didn't expect to find many. I really didn't know. What really picked my interest was, why are they calling these people crazy for saying sites were older? You know, as an archaeologist, our job is to look at, excavate, find, and discuss the human past. And how can you deny the human past when you haven't done that? So what I noticed was that a lot of the critiques against some of these archaeologists that were publishing on older sites weren't based on knowledge. They weren't based on people who went to the site or studied the work. It was just conjecture. It was just a knee-jerk reaction that, oh, no, people weren't here. And I'm like, why? And so I started looking into it as a graduate student, and I emailed Steve Holin, who was the head archaeologist at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science at the time, and I asked him, do you know of any sites that are older than Clovis, older than 12,000 years? And he emailed me back, and he said, well, I know of 10 sites, but don't tell anyone what you're studying. They're just going to call you crazy. He said, you'll never get your PhD. Well, you know, I started looking into it, he sent me that list of 10 sites and I got the articles and I started reading more books and in two weeks I had a list of over 500 sites that predated 12,000 years. And now I have a list of over 4,000. So I kind of knew right then, this is something that really needs to be discussed because it's very violent and very damaging for people anywhere to have their history denied and their links to their homelands denied and their own knowledge, their oral traditions of their history denied. And then when you look at it, it's being denied by a group of white archaeologists, who have done this for the last hundred years without basing their discussions on science or evidence. So I'm like, let's find the science and the evidence and see if there are oral traditions that match to any of these sites. And I found out there was.
0: We now go to two friends sitting around the campfire talking about oral traditions.
2: Could
1: you pass me uh, the marshmallow bag? Gonna toast one up. Oh, sure. Yeah. Here
0: you go. Awesome. Oh, gotta be careful. Get these things away from me. I can't help myself. I say
1: it doesn't count when you're camping. The calories don't count. Isn't that how it works? You burn calories being outside?
0: I don't know if that's true, but I like the way you think.
1: Oh, perfect. Nice and just a little brown. Mmm. I was just thinking, you know, I was on Twitter the other day and just saw some people saying some really... Dumb shit about oral histories. Like, oh, it's like a game of telephone when cultures use oral tradition as a way to store knowledge across generations. It's like, oh, it's like when you're kids and you're sitting around a circle just whispering in each other's ear. And I was like, you know, it's Twitter. You don't have a lot of uh, characters. I tried to list off all the differences I could think of, but I just ran out of space.
3: Yeah. I mean,
0: I can get the sort of intuitive argument that a conversation has less say like information fidelity than writing something down. Like I get why that is appealing to people. But I think it leaves out a lot of context. One of the big things I think that it does really is it underestimates the general intelligence of people. We're a very, very intelligent species. And within cultures that don't use the written word, wherever they're putting focus and attention on information by whatever sort of like conversational, uh, you know, say like rituals of information transfer you have, if you're a culture that has oral traditions, we really should assume that those are going to have a high degree of fidelity. If you're used to using the written word to transfer information, then you're going to be focusing less on remembering and conveying the verbal. But if you're in a culture that is centered on the verbal, it just makes sense that people in cultural context, where they're flexing that verbal memory muscle all the time, they're going to have as strong a grasp of knowledge within the verbal realm as cultures with written word would over the written word.
1: Yeah. And I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I I love the written word. I've written many words myself. I've read many words that have been written. But the idea that when you write something down, it's like inherently more objective than something that's spoken. Uh, just... Isn't true. And even where in theory the written word would be the strongest, the, the idea that when you write something down and say it's in a bunch of books and they're binded, they're in a library, it doesn't change. The words in the book don't change. Decades, hundreds of years later, it's still the same words. You know, that's so different from oral tradition where, you know, in that span of time you'd have multiple generations of people having to say these things out loud multiple times. But when you think about like books written in ye old English, or even things written like a few decades ago, the meaning of what's written starts to degrade over time because if you like if you've ever read an old theory book, you sometimes have to know a lot about the cultural context at the time to get why someone is talking about something in a certain way or what they're referring to when they say this general concept, or like, what the grammatical conventions of the time mean that this sentence parses this way. There's a lot of ways in which the meaning of written words also can change and morph and degrade over time. And we have you know disciplines of studying and understanding language and changes over time so that we can account for this and correct for it you can have those types of systems of accounting and correcting for shifting meanings and such in oral traditions as well. Sometimes there's this like really naive view that black and white letters on page equal objective when that's just obviously not the case. And even like a historical account written at the time of something It's going to be just as biased and just as subjective as a historical account passed down through generations with a high fidelity between generations of the content of that account.
0: No, that's such a good point to think about the way that the words on a page could remain constant for centuries but the capacity to have even the context to understand what they mean could be degraded socially. And then, yeah, it really brings to mind how with an oral tradition of history, the language and the description can be updated. So it can be almost like a reverse telephone game where the fidelity is improved with each generation for the new audience. And yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's sort of disadvantages or advantages in any direction in any way of sort of like recording knowledge that you can think of. But the idea that history is real when it's written down and not real when it's spoken verbally, that's an idea that I think really does have roots in colonial racism and was set up as a bar not to create an objective measure of difference, But to basically say that the verbal cultures and oral traditions of cultures that were being dominated, exploited, dispossessed, and so on, not just in the Americas, but around the world, weren't valid by colonial conquerors. And like that is the historical context where this idea comes from. So I think we'd be smart in the modern day to sort of second guess the sort of like telephone game arguments and try to think about the complexities of this issue, especially because, you know, when you look at, say, like legal arguments in the current context between states and indigenous groups about history, about ownership of land, these are going to be arguments where states have 50, 60, 100 year old written records saying that they have a right to things for this reason or another, even if the reason that they're ultimately justifying is like an edict from the Pope.
1: Oh, yeah, the Discovery Doctrine, yeah
0: versus oral traditions that have been passed down through generations, the argument that the oral traditions aren't at all valid or are inherently biased, it's going to create classist, racist, dispossessing outcomes in the systems that we have.
1: Yeah. And just in terms of knowing the history of the planets, of knowing more about the long arc of human history, it's shameful that all this information has existed within these cultures and these communities and that it's been systematically ignored. We could, have been using this trove of information to be guiding archaeological digs and like what are we looking for and how do we interpret what we're seeing when we find this site or when we find this phenomenon here i'm I'm not an archaeologist but i do know that It involves a lot of piecing together what happened from little scraps that are left over. And a lot of the time, what can help with that is having historical accounts that teach us about what was going on. It's sad that that it's been ignored for so long. It's just, yeah, it's just anti-knowledge. It's horrible for the human
0: community to know less about ourselves. To think that we could miss out on that knowledge of what all of our histories look like based on the racist ideology that you should only listen to some people in some context and not everybody. Oral traditions are really valuable and we should take them seriously.
1: Whew, see, man, the, This is why I love going camping. Sitting by the fire, talking about stuff. Uh, I feel like it really something about the, the air out here just helps clear the mind.
0: Yeah, could you um, pass the... Ah, no, I shouldn't. I mean... Crap, we didn't bring any healthy snacks.
1: Did be like, celery sticks or something? Yeah, we could roast some broccoli over the fire.
0: <laughs> that actually sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah, pass the broccoli. I mean, I've already had enough marshmallows tonight. Keep these things
1: away from me. <laughs> and that was two friends sitting by the campfire talking about oral traditions.
0: What did you uncover in terms of Indigenous oral traditions that the new data, the data that you're talking about, actually better fits than this old consensus.
2: Yeah, well, what I found is that it supports exactly what we find at some archaeology sites. So, oral traditions haven't been studied by academics, they're not published, there aren't huge books of them. They're starting to be more. A lot of communities have put really wonderful videos out where people can access them and use them for teaching materials where they're talking about their own oral histories. But one in particular, there's a site along the Pomme de Terre River that archaeologists had found a lot of stone tools and a lot of mammoth and mastodon bones at. Well, there's an Osage oral tradition. And in the Osage oral tradition, this was their homeland area. And they remember a time when there were so many of these great beasts on the land, it wasn't safe to go out hunting or getting food or to make trips And one day the beasts finally had a battle. There was just too many of them and they had a big fight and a big battle and a lot of them killed each other. So then it was safe for the Osage to go back out on the land and to give thanks to the beasts and to pay them respect, they cremated them. They set a fire and burned a lot of them at that site. And the Osage went back every single year and had a ceremony at that site to thank Creator and to thank the beasts for making the land safe again. So the Osage were removed from those lands and sent, I believe, somewhere near Oklahoma. And settlers moved in and they started digging up a lot of giant bones of mammoths and mastodons and stone tools. So then archeologists got interested. And now we know that as the Kisimwick site. And so what the archeologists found is that there were a lot of burned mammoth and mastodon bones and stone tools at that site. So the Osage oral tradition matches perfectly what archaeologists found at that site if there were mammoths and mastodons that oral tradition is minimally over 10,000 years old so that also tells us that oral traditions can be passed over thousands and thousands of years and still give us the history of events and people and places and that's really an important concept to understand.
0: Even during the duration of your work on this subject, we've seen the consensus sort of shifting over time earlier and earlier on some of these questions. Like there was an article talking about extending beyond the Clovis timeline, and there's quoted another archaeologist who works for some sort of consulting firm or something, being like, this isn't scientific, you know, oral traditions are not scientific. But then is it last year in 2021, there's now a really prominent site that's extending to 20,000. That seems to be from my read, the consensus piece that everyone can agree that this is actually an older site and that's happened within the last handful of years
2: yeah there's been a number of new sites so I started publishing on this in 2015 and really trying to create safe space for those discussions and trying to wrap my head around how hard it was for these archaeologists to publish on these sites and keep their heads up and keep their jobs So, I really appreciate the work they did because they were violently attacked by other archaeologists. They were called crazy, they were called lunatics. They're lucky they held on to their jobs. So, it wasn't very easy for them to publish. But there were a group of them that were publishing on a lot of sites in North and South America. And so, I started to bring this discussion of all these sites and publications into my published papers and trying to create safe space to talk about this. We shouldn't have to create safe space to talk about human history. We know that technology is changing. We know there's more excavations and work being done. Every time they build a bridge or a road anywhere in the Americas, they find an indigenous site. I worked in archeological field work for five years in the United States and every single mile, they were between three and 12 sites. And that told me, wow, Indigenous people covered this land for a very long time. That experience of working in field work, though, also informed me of a high level of ignorance in the field. So none of the archeologists, and I probably worked with a few hundred in those five years, had ever taken a class on Indigenous history. Most of them had never met an Indigenous person or been to an Indigenous community. But here they are out there digging up the sites and interpreting them, and they have no idea of how Indigenous people feel about these sites or their own history. And that site in uh, White Sands now, where they found human footprints that date back over 20,000 years, that's awesome. It's really great to see people doing that work. I'd like to see them including more of the Indigenous communities when they're interpreting those sites and that history. What else does that tell us? If you have humans walking across New Mexico twenty to 23,000 years ago, where are their living sites, right? That's not a site where people fell out of the sky and landed there and then left. They had to have walked there from somewhere. They had to have lived, hunted, had children, raised families. Where are those sites in the land? So what these older sites that are now coming to light should be telling archaeologists is look for their living sites, look for the rest of this history, right? If people were here 20,000 years ago, they had to get here before the last glaciation started around 24,000 years ago. And to get from any of the access points that might have been in North America, the Bering Land Bridge, the East Coast, anywhere, they would have had to be in here for thousands of years prior to the last glacial maximum to have reached all the areas of North and South America that they reached
0: Today on Confirmation Bias News from the Vancouver Sun in 2016, challenging the origin story of Native Americans. Paulette Steve's work as an archaeologist seeks to upend long held notions about indigenous culture in the Americas. Steves, who is Métis, was the first PhD candidate in her field to successfully defend her dissertation using indigenous method and theory. She spent years building a database of Pleistocene archaeological sites that show her ancestors have been in the Americas far longer than previously acknowledged. Her work, which challenges the colonial legacy of archaeology, is considered revolutionary by some and controversial by others. Steves believes objections to inclusion of indigenous ways and methods in archaeology comes from, quote, a really strong and deep-rooted racism in North American anthropology against Native Americans. The history of indigenous people in the Americas was manufactured, said Steves, to make it easier to overlook the atrocities that colonization brought. When people started coming here to the Americas, they were finding signs of great civilizations, and stories were created to say that these sites and this civilization was not built by the indigenous people. They called them the savages. They created the people here as nature, not as culture. If it's culture, you can't massacre them or kill them or put a head price on them but if they're nature, it's okay to do that. Steve's continued, Counter to the Western stories that we've been here only 12,000 years, we've been here for over 60,000 years, likely over 100,000 years, and there's a great deal of evidence to support that. But not everyone agrees. Stuart Fidel, an archaeologist with the consulting firm Louis Berger Group, calls Steve's claims placing indigenous peoples and culture in the Americas as far back as the Pleistocene era, absurd. Quote, The ancestors of Native Americans arrived no more than 15,000 to 16,000 years from the populations in Eurasia. Fidel disputes the genetic evidence and dismisses indigenous ways and methods, such as oral tradition, as simply not science. Next up on confirmation bias news from National Geographic in 2021. Stunning footprints push back human arrival in Americas by thousands of years. The tracks at New Mexico's White Sands National Park are upending past assumptions on when humans first ventured into North and South America. According to a paper published today in the journal Science, the footprints at White Sands were pressed into the mud near an ancient lake between 21,000 and 23,000 years ago. Exactly when humans populated the Americas has been fiercely debated for nearly a century. And until recently, many scientists maintained this momentous first occurred no earlier than 13,000 years ago. A growing number of discoveries suggests people were in North and South America thousands of years before. Radiocarbon dating of ancient seeds found at the site suggests humans and animals trekked across the same grassy route for at least two millennia, from 21,000 to 23,000 years ago. Quote, we have really tried to prove it's not that old and we keep coming up dry, said Daniel Odes, an archaeologist and chief scientist for cultural resources with the National Park Service and an author of the new study. A discovery like this is very close to finding the Holy Grail, said Chaprian Adeline, an archaeologist with the Autonomous University of Zacatecas. I think we will soon not speak in terms of pre-Clovis possibilities. We will speak in terms of pre-White Sands and post-White Sands. So there you have it. New evidence is pushing the earliest peopling of the Americas earlier and earlier. And it's increasingly clear that Stuart Fidel was wrong and Steve's was right. A lot of these pre-Clovis sites have been known about for a long time, but because of these biases and these structures, they weren't accepted. Is there any difference in, when we compare pre-Clovis timeline sites in the Americas to, say, similar distances in the past in Africa, Asia, Europe, is there a qualitative difference in the data, the types of sites? Is there anything that would say these sites from the Americas are somehow less reliable than the things that are accepted as consensus on other continents.
2: The only thing that would do that is racism because you look at some of these sites and there's literally hundreds of thousands of artifacts. There's thousands of tools. There's hundreds and hundreds of sites where we know that people had earth ovens or where they cooked, you know, or where they stored food. Or where they did activities. What it takes to do research on these sites, good research is funding. So you can imagine these archaeologists working, you know, across the last hundred years, how did they get funding for sites that most archaeologists argued were illegitimate and didn't exist? I think it was very difficult for them to get funding and I'm really happy that they did. But even today, you have to get funded to go out on the land and do this research. So Steve Holland has worked on a number of sites that date to the Pleistocene. He came to the realization a long time ago that this wasn't right and that people were dismissing these sites based on conjecture, not based on data and science. And he began looking at other sites in the Great Plains and I got very lucky to be able to do my PhD field work with him on Pleistocene sites in the Great Plains. So the more that we disturb and change the earth, the more sites we find. So a lot of reservoirs, when they rise up, they cut the earth back. And this is when sometimes exposed. And the one site that I was able to do work on after the main excavations, but just do more collecting there was the Lasina site in Nebraska. And Steve Holland worked on this site with a number of archaeologists and had a number of field schools there over 11 years. So very solid data, very solid work. And he knew, as most archaeologists do, that he would be violently attacked for his publication saying this site was over 18,000 years old. So you see archaeologists that work in pre-Clovis areas being extremely careful, doing exact science because they know they're going to be attacked without cause and they know they have to defend it. So that was a site where there were mammoth bones that were spirally fractured, which is something that humans do to mammoth bones with a large rock. So even a giant short-faced bear couldn't bite a mammoth femur and break it they were just too big but humans broke them to get bone for tools and to get at the marrow. So there's been a lot of really good science formed around the study of pre-Clovis sites by archaeologists that are being extremely careful. Steve Holland also worked on the site in California that's dated to over 130,000 years. They had all the materials from that site for a long time in a museum and they waited so they could not do the dating on them until the science got to a place where it could not be questioned. And I think they waited over 10 or 15 years to do this. So they were very patient, but then they did get the dating done and they did get the site published. And it's a very good site. I've studied the materials from the site. I've studied the site area and all the research on the site. And there's a number of sites in Southern California that date to earlier time frames over 50,000 years. And so we can say, well, you know, it makes sense. It's a regional area. Of course, if there's one site, there's more. And it's great that in Southern California and Central Mexico, a number of these older sites dating over 100,000 to 200,000 years have been studied and published and dated.
0: It occurred to me, I know that there's some legal protections when sites are found, that there's responsibilities if they're accepted sites, is there a financial incentive to cap sites at a certain timeframe and say, like, for example, if there's sites from before 12,000 years that you can say they're not real sites, then is there times where businesses or governments would then have less responsibilities to preserve the artifacts and stuff like that?
2: Absolutely. There is protection for cultural sites in North America. So if a site is denied as not being a cultural site. It's not protected. The U.S. has made a number of sites that predate Clovis, not by much, but predate Clovis, into national historic areas and afforded them protection. For archaeologists, this is their academic capital. So what are you putting in danger when you say there's an older site and people don't believe you? You're putting your academic capital and danger so a lot of people won't go there there are a lot of scholars faculty indigenous faculty that don't discuss colonization that don't discuss the violence of ongoing colonization in archaeology who's going to hire you when you critique that field who's going to hire you into archaeology when you openly critique and discuss the history of the field as being a violent colonial space right? So there's a lot of people that don't step outside of a box of comfort to actually discuss the truth. I think it's very important to be a truth teller for everybody. If there's something about human history that's denied and we know a truth, we should discuss it. And if there's a reason those truths are blocked, we should discuss it. This is how you expand and move forward an academic field, how you decolonize the field. But for a lot of people, that's their academic capital. So they're very careful with protecting it. And I think that's what a lot of archaeologists did. They didn't want to be called crazy. They didn't want to be called lunatics. And so I've been told there's a lot of archaeologists that haven't reported sites they know are older than 12,000 years. So the few hundred that I have in my book, that's just a tiny amount of what's actually out there and as science gets better and better and we can go back and review these sites maybe some of them will be found to not be that old and maybe a lot others will be found that are that old and like i said if you have a site in one area that dates to over 20,000 years there's going to be more there has to be sites all around that date to the same time frame and that's what we should be doing i think archaeologists should find that very interesting, and I think they should start getting out there with their graduate students and looking for these sites around the footprints, around any site in North America or South America that we know has really solid data and dates to an earlier time frame. There has to be more sites, so get out there and find them.
1: We now go to the construction site of a brand new overpass, where a lowly employee has discovered what he believes to be ancient stone tools. Whoa, hey, look at this thing. Hey boss, come over here. Check this out. Yes, yes. Is, is someone working very hard? I'd like to see that. Really
0: cool. Look, it's like, it's like an old stone tool. Uh, nope. Like the same kind that I've seen in archaeological digs on other continents.
1: That <laughs> doesn't look like a stone tool to me. Um, that could just be a natural fragment of stone. Look, you know, like sometimes that's the way the, the stone breaks. Right. Well, yeah. I, mean, I would just toss it under the tractor or the, what is the thing with the scoop? The scoop machine?
0: Boss, I don't think I should throw it under the scoop machine. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but, like, I have looked at comparable ancient tools. It looks... It's got some of the distinctive features that I recognize. So I think we should get this checked out by, like, I don't know, a team uh, of you, you know, experts or something. At like. the depth
1: we're digging right now, archaeologically, there were no people on this continent at that time. So, really, it just... You think it looks the same, but, I mean, it doesn't... It's not, so... Yeah, like I said... Right, but, it no, but it's similar to... Uh, it might be similar to you, but if other people, important people, think it's similar, then this whole site's going to get declared protected and we're not going to be able to build this overpass and that's going to be bad for everyone.
0: But boss, if there were to be things at this depth, they would look like this, based on reference points from other continents. If we're just assuming that people haven't been here in the americas that long and
1: we are assuming that and then
0: we're casting out any evidence that might disprove that then we've got a sort of tautological denial of any evidence that yes that
1: might show up exactly you know you're one of the smart ones so
0: what is the issue that it could like cost us money or is it like that it would look what's the issue that we would interfere with the overpass project yeah do
1: you drive Have you ever been stuck in traffic?
0: Right, I mean, we could still make the overpass, at the end of the day, we just learn more about ourselves, you know, learn more about humanity's history, and and be enriched by it, is what I was thinking, but, I mean, I guess you're the boss, because you just know a lot more about this stuff than me, I don't know, I I don't want to rock the boat too much, you do
1: pay my paycheck. True, yeah, I mean, I could have said, throw that away, or into the dirt, or hide it somewhere, or I'll fire you, but I did hope that was just kind of subtly implied. I don't want to be crass about it. All
0: right, so if I find any more of these, should I just, like, whip them? Yeah, definitely. Whip them like a stone across water?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't hit anybody's car, obviously. We want to respect cars, but other than that, just away, Just into the water in a trash can, dig even deeper, and just toss it back down there. Basically, I'm just saying hide it. At all costs. Please, just hide it.
0: Yeah, okay. All right. Thanks, boss. Good to check in with you about this sort of stuff. I appreciate
1: it. No problem. Glad I could help you and uh, us all in society from having to deal with any pesky questions.
0: Hey, check out this. You know, I was in Little League.
1: Ooh. Oh, nice. Nice. Wow, that's beautiful.
0: Yeah, hey, I got another one.
1: <laughs> wow, that's a lot of probable stone tools.
0: Yeah, check out these ones. These ones actually look a lot like tools
1: oh hey no, come on we said no cars please oh I'm sorry
0: it was an accident
1: just get back to work please bury the rest employees can't live with them can't live without them
0: oh, sorry boss i underestimated my own strength there and so that was a lowly employee tossing away ancient evidence of the peopling of americas at the behest of his for-profit boss causing us to miss out on opportunities to better understand ourselves and now back to our show Over the last hundred years or so, we've seen this earliest peopling of the Americas moving earlier and earlier from 11,000, 13,000 to 16,000. As of last year, 20,000, which we said means 24,000. And you mentioned a site in California that's 130,000 years, it looks like, and as much as the possibility of migration out of Asia for 2 million years. What is the big picture on the timeline here? What are you compelled to think about looking at this whole scope of possibility in the current moment?
2: I think it's really important for people to remember that there's always more than one story. So if we look back at what we understand on human evolution, there was the eve out of Africa. Well, that's one story, but there's always more than one story and there's always more evidence to find. Like I say, human history and evolution has changed immensely in the last 20 years. So looking at the Americas, there's more than one story. The story was that you know a small group of people came across the land bridge at the end of a major glaciation and populated the Americas in as little as 200 years. That doesn't make any sense. There are many ways to migrate between landmasses. People have been using boats. It's argued over 100,000 years they've been using water transport. So we have tools that have been found off the East Coast that are similar to tools that we find in areas of Europe today called Southern France, exactly like those tools that date to over 22, 24,000 years. Recently, just a few weeks ago, I received in an article written by an archaeologist from Alabama who's discussing what he calls the CAPS technology. So there are a lot of stone tools that have been found throughout the Americas that pretty much resemble exactly what we call Levallois tools from the eastern hemisphere, and these tools date between 200 and 300,000 years old. And this archaeologist, it just kind of burned in his mind until he spent you know, months and months and months doing comparative studies of those tools and actually felt extremely lucky to find a place to get the paper on that one site that he calls CAPS technology published. So I've gotten a hold of him now and I'm creating a database of sites in the Americas where we have found what he calls CAPS tools and technologies they're exactly similar to ones in the Eastern Hemisphere that date to 200 to 300,000 years. I think moving forward, we need to set the stage by understanding the paleo environment. So what did the world look like 200,000 years ago? What is the scientific data that shows us that there was a land bridge, that there was uh, food on the land for mammals and humans, there was sustenance there were much lower ocean levels at certain times, which made the distance between what we know today as Europe and the East Coast of North America much shorter. So the whole continental shelf was a dry landmass. And we know that indigenous peoples were living out on that continental shelf. What are the possibilities? So looking at the paleo environment and making a really strong record, a lot of people have done amazing work in this area already. And it's just pulling all of that data together and what are the possibilities for humans coming or going between the Eastern and the Western hemisphere? It's more than one story. You know, you've got two continents that over one third of the global landmass. And so I would never suggest that there was only one story or one small group of people. I would suggest we need to look at our understanding of the paleo environment, our understanding of our four-legged relations and how they came and went, because You have mammals that arose in North America that are around the rest of the world. So camels arose in the Americas. We have camelids on Ellesmere Island at 3.5 million years. How did they get to the Eastern Hemisphere? How did they get to Asia? They had to walk and they had to have food on the land to make that journey, right? Horses arose in the Americas. Same thing. Saber-toothed cats arose in the Americas and likely followed their prey camels and horses across to asia so what are the time frames that we know that those exchanges took place these are the time frames that we know that if mammals were going between the eastern and western hemisphere then humans could have also and what are the routes right what are the routes there was a story in the paper last year about a fox that had been radio collared somewhere in northern europe and that fox went across the ice all the way across Greenland and across up into northern Canada. If a fox can do this and sustain himself on that way, then so could a human, <laughs> likely. And so, you know, we have to look at the stories that our animal relations are telling us, the stories that a lot of wonderful work in paleontology and environmental studies are telling us. So my focus now is on trying to wrap my head around what was the world like for the last 200,000 years? What was it like for the last 2 million years? So, I've published a chapter on human evolution. So, I also have a certificate in human evolution because, you know, if I'm going to understand possible migrations between continental land masses, I need to understand all of human evolution to the best of my ability and looking at how humans moved across the land, what were the resources they needed? How long did it take for humans to move across the land? We don't really know. But we know that it would have been quite a bit of time to get from, say, somewhere in northern Asia to the southern tip of Patagonia. That would have taken generations. And we have other areas of science and research that support earlier human timeframes in the Americas. When you look at linguistics, Joanna Nicholas really got violently attacked for her article she published on this, but she started out by saying that for the number of language families you have in the Americas, it would have taken over 70,000 years for them to develop. Then she backed it up to 35,000 years, 30 to 35,000 years, because she was really aggressively attacked. But each language takes, she said it minimally. 6,000 years to develop. So when you look around the world, there's, I think, as many now as 380 language families, and each language families, there's one that has one language, there's many that have dozens and dozens of languages. And so it would have taken them a long time to develop in those particular areas. So you would expect to see, like Africa have maybe the most language families in the world, but that's not what you see. The most language families anywhere in the world are in the Americas. More than half of the entire language families in the world are in the Americas. California alone has 15 language families. So we know it was a very culturally diverse and linguistically diverse area. But for that many language families to form, it would have taken, like Joanna Nicholas said, 30 to 35,000 years, if not much longer. So we need to look at all the evidence to support this hypothesis that people have been here much earlier. And all the evidence that I have found does support that people have been here much earlier. The evidence I found also strongly supports the only reason that we don't have a general understanding of this is because of racism and bias in the field that started in the 1920s, when settlers were taking over the Americas and erasing indigenous people from the land, erasing their rights to the land, their links to the land, erasing their ownership of the stories, the artifacts their ancestors left in the land because that became archeological capital.
0: This is so compelling to me. I just loved the book. I read it in like two nights and there's so much context in the book and so many different layers of evidence. When you start looking at the table that you put of the different mammalian moves from the different continents, and then you look at the language family thing, and then you look at the sites that exist that are just clearly so old and you put it all together. It's wild to me. It just seems so clearly that there's so much evidence here. And there's so much reason to think that the history of the peopling of the Americas is a complex story that involved people migrating in different directions and people being places for a long time. And for you who took an interest in this topic when it was still sort of forbidden, and you see these changes and the willingness to consider this in a larger way, do you feel vindicated in knowing that you put that flag up early? Are you optimistic about the direction or do you feel like there's still gonna be a lot of resistance to this?
2: Well, I think there's still gonna be a lot of resistance to this. But it's great to see people changing their stories. And I mean, how long can you deny something when so many red flags are raised and so much amazing evidence is produced? People were very terrified for a long time to even discuss this area as archaeologists because it would end their career. I was given a job to do. And so I went to speak with an elder, I grew up in Lillooet, BC, and I went to speak with an elder when I was leaving there at a very difficult time in my life, to get guidance from the elder and he told me at that time I mean I was going through a divorce I was a single parent with three kids and a greater education and. 26 cents in a truck. And I said, you know, I really need your guidance. I'm going to leave, take my kids and leave Lillowat. And he said, you know, we've watched you grow up and we know that you have an important job to do for Indian people. And he said, not just us. He said, all Indian people. And we don't know exactly what it is, but we know it's going to be extremely difficult And you need to be strong, he said, what you're going through now is training to learn to deal with difficult situations. And that was Elder Leonard Sampson. And so I left Lillooet, and I never forgot what he said. And when I was graduating, it, it just the light bulb went on. Oh, that's what he meant. My job is to rewrite Indigenous histories of the Americas. The difficult part, the most difficult part of this journey for me was the racism I faced in grad school and seeing that amount of violence and anger and hate because I had a voice and I had brown skin. And I was speaking of archaeology as being a racist place and having a history of racism and bias. But, you know, I got through that. That was sort of the middle of the teeter-totter. That was the pivotal point. And I got through that. And I just have learned to listen to creator's guidance and to keep Delving deeper into this subject and what happens I start talking about it in published papers in 2015 in lectures. Nobody ever called me crazy to my face. I've never seen any bad critique. I think archaeologists now are very careful how they speak to First Nations and Native American people or how they speak of them. And if they speak badly they're not going to do it in public because guess what now there are laws that state they must consult. First Nations or Native American or Indigenous communities to work with them on archaeology. We've really moved strongly into that area. And so I think people are very careful about critiquing me publicly. But I think there has been a lot of change. And when I see now there's a site in Mexico, Chiquita Cave, that dates to 32,000 years There's the site in Southern California that dates to 130,000 years. There's a site in New Mexico that dates to over 22,000 years. And I think that we're going to find a lot more sites. So when you look at that map, you see there's not a lot of sites where the glacier was. That's because it's very northern. And when we find archaeological sites, quite often we find them around urban areas because we're disturbing the soil. We're building roads, we're building bridges, we're building houses, and these sites Come to mind, or someone has taken it upon themselves to look in a specific area and they've found a site. So nobody's been looking in that northern area, that northern Canada area, so it's basically an untapped resource. So when the glacier came, it did scrape soil off of the earth, but the weight of the glacier also pushed the earth down, right? And after the glacier receded, it rebounded. So we know in Saskatchewan they're always finding dinosaurs. These are really old. We know the glacier did not take all of the soil and all the sites of human habitation off the land. We know there's caves. Caves are amazing sites to do archaeology because they were protected from glaciation and sometimes from floods, sometimes not. But I'm really starting to look around now at these older sites in that areas. Okay, if we were going to look for older sites, number one, we know it would likely be very deep. And we'd have to do a lot of work to find them. In the South, they're finding these CAPS technologies, lovalis tools on the surface in some places. So I think the biggest thing is that people have to remove those colonial blinders they have on their eyes and step out of their box and start treating the archaeology of North America like they treat the archaeology anywhere else in the world. Anything is possible if you look. If you don't look or it's dangerous to look, you're not going to find it. But what happens when you start looking and you start paying attention? Oh, guess what? All these sites are now popping up and they're good sites. So I think that the fields are going to continue to expand. I think genetics been kind of limiting and trying to fit its story to match the archaeological record. And people don't realize when geneticists say that, oh, all the... Indians are related, they're all Asians from Asia. They're looking at less than one tenth 10th or 1% of the ancient data and probably less than 5 to 10% of the contemporary data that would show us an entire body of information genetically about Indigenous people. They just don't have the data. And some geneticists make that very clear in their papers and others kind of just gloss over it because they want to make a point and it's their story and it's the right story. And I always have to remind them, there's always more than one story. And by the way, you don't have enough data to back this story up as being the only story.
0: Well, yeah. And the book is an incredible read. And in the context that you're laying out and how you and others have had to fight against these currents to have people just look at the basic facts of the data that's actually around. I appreciate that so greatly. And like I said, this book was fascinating. And ultra stimulating to read. Highly, highly recommend it for people who are interested in this subject. Is there anything else that you'd like to get into before we wrap up?
2: Yeah, I think it's important for people to understand concepts like agontology. So agontology is the intentional teaching of ignorance. It's not about what you're taught. It's about what you're not taught. There's a great book called agontology. And education has been based on that. People need to realize that education has been completely controlled and framed by a very small body of knowledge from five small areas of the world, Western areas. It's completely Eurocentric. We're getting to a place now where education is becoming international More Indigenous people are getting their PhDs, they're adding their voices and their community voices to education. I think the students of the future are going to be just blessed with a wealth of new information and Indigenous knowledge. And I think we've just gotten to that place where we realize this, but students aren't taught often there are some professors that discuss this, but they aren't taught about agontology, about how they're trained to think in ways that are socially acceptable to the nation state. So the bigger picture is you have to understand the background of education, the control of education by Western Eurocentric scholars in nation state. And you have to also think about, wow, how much richer and more diverse would education be if we had the other 95% of knowledge that the world contains outside of that 5% of that Western Eurocentric view, right? And in some countries, they're way far ahead of this, some places like Australia and New Zealand, but indigenous scholars and their like-minded peers are out here pushing to decolonize and indigenize education, pushing so that the next seven generations of students will have this rich, diverse body of knowledge to draw on. But to even open that book, students first have to understand and people have to understand that you have to open your mind, open your heart, decolonize your mind, learn about colonization, ongoing colonization, because when you do that, you unlock all these possibilities of really expanding your knowledge and your life experience and being a part of making the world a better place for all people. So my focus on doing this research was, what can I do to help with these high suicide rates in Indigenous communities? I understand that Indigenous communities are suffering from intergenerational trauma, from years of colonization what do we put out there? What can we do to maybe bring hope to people? And my daughter went to a young woman's meeting in Northern Ontario that was a healing meeting. Girls came from a lot of communities and they sat in a circle and they were supposed to share one thing that brought them hope for the future. And my daughter said, this one girl's face just lit up. She got so excited and she said, there's this archeologist that said, we've been here over 50,000 years. And that brings me hope that we'll get our land back, our history back, our identity back, our sovereignty back. And my daughter said, tee hee hee, I didn't tell her it was my mom. You know, but that told me maybe I am doing something that will help bring some piece of hope to indigenous communities. So reclaiming our history, reclaiming our lands, reclaiming our links to these ancient lands, right? reclaiming our oral traditions and making people aware that oral traditions are facts. They are histories that have been passed over thousands of years. There was one Indigenous scholar who did his dissertation on oral traditions, and he said he knows that they've been passed at least over 40,000 years. And so here's a huge body of knowledge that we've yet to tap and bring into education And I think that education will be a much richer place when we do weave indigenous voices and knowledge through it. But to really gain from that, you know, students and people first need to understand things like agontology and the bias of Western Eurocentric education to be able to move beyond those borders.
0: Well, yeah. Well, this has been super exciting conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. I really, really appreciate this. And the work that you're doing, I find really inspiring. What you're talking about, it's so profound. Really appreciate your time, and thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me.
3: We're at war. War with colonial archaeology. War with the pseudoscience of eugenicist white supremacists. And war for land back, reconciliation, and decolonization. These population and eugenicists kept their thumb on us for too long, and it's time that we come together, recognize that our struggles are all connected, and fight boldly for all. Universal human emancipation, my name is Felix Bones, your spooky conductor, and welcome to Narrative Wars, because there's a war on for your story. Urgent patriot alert. It's important that everyone gets a grasp of the history of this land we live on in the Americas and understand that we can't get free unless we all get free together. More and more settlers are recognizing that we should not give in to the racist colonial tyranny of the wealthy ruling elite. More and more are recognizing a universal brotherhood and kinship with all people, including and especially the colonized who have faced unspeakable destruction at the hands of the white supremacist American settlers. But big media censorship on our critical theory agenda has pushed us at narrative wars for too long into the shadows. I have literally prayed to get great sponsors. That is why I was so overjoyed that the Narrative Wars bookstore is now fully stocked with top of the line, inexpensive, and ready to ship books on decolonization for patriots of universal human emancipation. We have Paulette Steve's incredible book, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. We've got Robin Walt Kimberer. We have Thomas King, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. These are top of the line decolonial authors at affordable prices. And if you get them at the Narrative Wars store, you can help our fight to change the narrative. And if you use the coupon code, Tahua. sorry, just check my note. <clears throat> if you use the coupon code, TOT account that will get you 30% off your order and we here at narrative wars appreciate that not everyone can afford to go running around buying books all the time so we encourage you as always to visit your local library in the words of bell hooks the public library is one of the most subversive institutions because it's a place where individuals of all classes can gain access to writing that will raise their consciousness if you are receiving this
0: transmission you are the resistance.
3: Hello folks, it's Felix Bones here at the Top of the Hour. We're broadcasting today from the historic territories of the Tonkawa, straight to your earphones, wherever you are around the world. Today we got a very special guest. It is independent researcher and journalist, Raspy Stillwater, here to talk about the explosive allegations he's uncovered about Hunter Biden's laptop.
1: Thanks for being here with us. It's always an honor to be on, to bring you the real information, what they're not telling you on the mainstream media about Hunter Biden's laptop.
3: I'm going to make you blush, but I always say this, our fans love Raspi Stillwater. He always explodes the truth.
1: (laughs) Blushing achieved. So what are we talking about on this laptop, this forbidden knowledge laptop? The truth bomb that we're going to set off today from this laptop, there is evidence contained in those files that decolonizing science will actually lead to greater quality information. Now, this is because science thrives on having more information, more hypotheses to check, more perspectives
3: to help build a stronger objectivity. Right. So now, what you're saying here is that by excluding the voices of indigenous people, science, archaeology, anthropology, they're going to be missing out on real information, and this is oh, all oh yeah, on the you mentioned
1: archaeology. Just there's sites that have been covered up. There's so much information here. I can't get into all the details, but of course, the entire upload is uh, leaked now up on our website, so you can check it out yourself. All the information's there. Really, I think what this information shows is that there are people pushing a false idea of what standpoint epistemology and critical race theory are trying to achieve. Trying
3: to put the wool over the eyes. Absolutely.
1: Really, what the evidence on the laptop shows is that it is a false flag, a massive psyop against the public with the agenda of preventing land back.
3: So what you're telling me is that there's a group of white supremacist, population control eugenicists who are working to repress the true knowledge of our history on this land, the crimes of our forebearers. And the reason they're doing this is because they want to suppress political action for universal human emancipation. That's what I'm picking up from you now.
1: Exactly right, Felix. And not only that, but... We have actually found evidence that we cannot achieve freedom for everyone in the Americas without seriously committing to decolonization in the sciences and just decolonization broadly, decolonizing our society and ourselves as well. It's all there. It's all in the documents. I mean, those of us in the know have known this for decades.
3: Yeah, we've got the documents.
1: Is not a secret. What's contained on this laptop just blows it all open.
3: Like Roxanne dunbar R.T. says, the revolution of 1776 was a war to fight for more Western expansion, to fight to expand slaveholding territory.
1: Exactly. I loved her episode on your show. You just really know how to ask the right questions.
3: Well, that's very kind for you to say, especially coming from such an intrepid journalist. One of the best another incredible interview with journalist Raspi stillwater you can check out his work at truth, truth, truth your source for truth online and that's
1: truth with two t's don't forget both times truth truth
3: absolutely the real suppressed way to spell truth if someone's spelling truth with one t you know that they're part of the enemy we're gonna have some words from our sponsors here but after we come back we're going to be talking about how the idea of the white race was created and recreated as a legal construct by the ruling class to divide us against our fight for universal human emancipation. Stay with us. Well, that's
0: all the podcasts that we have in our podcasting tube today. Thanks again to Paulette Steves for coming on the show. The book is Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. It's released as a hardcover and an e-book. I managed to find it at my local library, but it might interest people to know that in spring of 2023, the book is going to be released as a paperback, which means that it will be more affordable, more accessible. Uh, So I'll have a link in the description to Paulette Steve's website, as well as her Twitter profile, so you can keep up to date with that. So it'll be next year, there'll be a paperback copy, more affordable if you want it in your collection. But, you know, ask your local library to get it. They might already have it even. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Aaron, any last thoughts before we uh, strap this episode to the rocket ship and blast it into the sun?
1: Maybe (laughs) Maybe. let's blast it into the stratosphere, but not into... I feel like if we blast it into the sun metaphorically, that kind of implies it's being destroyed or something, but... The stratosphere feels like going going above and beyond.
0: I guess I was kind of thinking of like it being in the pantheon in the sun in a good way, but no, I think you're right. The implication is sort of at least unclear, if not negative. So is there anything you want to say before we finish binding this book and then we put it eternally in the library of knowledge?
1: Yeah, the seriously wrong section of the library. I think just that I'm looking forward to seeing how the story of human history on the uh, American continent continues to unfold as we discover and more about it and do more archaeology and yeah I just I think it really is one of the most fascinating developing areas in in science right now so I can't wait to see uh, where we are in like two decades or something.
0: Thanks for listening everyone and we'll talk to you soon. We'll hang out with you inside your ears as little talking voices again soon.
1: Yeah have a great week
0: This episode of Seriously Wrong was produced by myself, Sean Villiers, with support from Aaron Moritz, as well as editing help from Franz O'Carroll. If you wanna see more episodes of Seriously Wrong more often with great guests like Paulette, the best way that you can help is by signing up on our Patreon at $6 a month, and you'll get access to all of our bonus episodes and content, we'll be able to hire people to help. You know, doing shows like this, it takes a lot of work a most mainstream sort of big podcast will have a staff and we'd really like to do that someday as well as make sure that we have enough money to live and we can keep doing the show and putting that time and effort into it so thank you again to everyone who's already doing that you can find our website at srslywrong.com seriouslywrong.com and on patreon at patreon.com seriouslywrong we'll see you very soon with another episode take care